Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. We've seen some alarming headlines recently that deal with the heat, not just hot, sticky summer days, but extreme record-breaking heat. Last month was the hottest June on record, and then just a few days later, Earth recorded what was likely the hottest days in modern history. Scientists say there's a good chance that 2023 will go down as the hottest year. Right now, about 24% of the United States is under dangerous heat levels, and it's not expected to cool down anytime soon in many of those cities. If you travel to Phoenix, I'm sure you've heard they're on their 20th day of over 110 degree weather. Going to Europe, think again, temperatures in Greece were so hot that they closed the Acropolis Monument to the public last Friday. And tourists in Italy and Spain are also finding their vacations disrupted by extreme heat. So what is going on with the weather? and the climate, not just here in Minnesota and across the U.S., but globally, and how concerned should we be? As I talk with my guests this hour, I want to hear from you, too. Think back to some of the hottest days you've lived through. How did the extreme heat disrupt your plans? And how are you planning for a warmer climate? What questions do you have about extreme heat and its effect on your body, your mind, and our planet? The phone lines are open. Here are the numbers. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or call us at 800-242-2828. Let me introduce our guest. We have Jeff Goodell with us. Jeff is a writer and contributor to Rolling Stone magazine. He is the author of seven books, including his latest. It's called The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Jeff is joining us from Austin, Texas. Good morning to you. Good morning, Angela. Hi, Jeff. And I have to know, how's the weather in Austin right now? Uh, Well, we are in this sort of blissful moment of the morning when it's um, only 82 degrees and it's cool uh, by Texas standards. And um, we can still walk around a little bit outside and not feel like we're going to, you know, have heat exhaustion um, and bracing for the afternoon where it's predicted to get up to about 107 today. Wow. Okay. Also here in the studio with me, I have Teddy Potter. Teddy is a clinical professor and director of planetary health at the University of Minnesota School of Nursing. She has a PhD in humanities and transformative studies. Dr. Potter is also a leader in the climate change and health curriculum Good morning to you, Teddy. Good morning. Nice to be joining you. And Jeff, we're, we're doing pretty good right now. Our high today in Minnesota is going to be uh, in the 80s today. But my goodness, we, uh, you know, the producers of the show and I, we decided about a week or a week and a half ago that we wanted to talk about the extreme heat. And so we've been watching what's been happening nationally and across the world very closely the last few days. And it, it, it is truly unsettling, I know, for me. So I, I want to start by asking both of you, what has it been like for you to listen to these news reports, to read about the, the heat? heat waves we're seeing across the U.S. and Europe in the last couple of weeks. Uh, It's getting a lot of attention. Uh, What's it been like for you, Jeff? Well, you know, I've been living it here in Texas. Um, You know, we had last week, especially um, some really uh, extreme temperatures. Parts of Texas got up to 115, um, which is really unusual, breaking a lot of records. But it's been particularly kind of strange and eerie for me because, you know, I spent the last four years um, writing a book about and exploring, um, researching um, uh, extreme mm-hmm. heat and the consequences of extreme heat. So so I've joked that it, it, some, it, my book and my book just came out and it feels to me sometimes like I'm 
living in a Stephen King novel or something, you know, that the, um, the stuff that I wrote about is like happening around me um, mm -hmm. as, as the book is, is going into the world. So it's been a little bit of an eerie feeling for me. And also too, I mean, the, the fact that it doesn't cool off a lot at night, that that's somewhat different too, I think in a lot of these cities. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the important things about kind of, you know, getting through and surviving, you know, extreme heat waves is, the ability having a, a place and a time to cool off, whether it's, you know, getting into an air conditioned or shady space during the day when you're working outside or at night um, when temperatures drop, your body has a, has a chance to cool off and recuperate. And without that kind of respite from the heat, the, the toll on your body kind of accumulates and it makes it much more difficult to tolerate. Mm. And Teddy, uh, personally, what has it been like for you to, to read and listen to these reports about extreme heat in so many places uh, in the last couple of weeks? Well, we've known that this is going to be coming for a long time. I would say maybe the last three or four decades, um, NASA scientist James Hansen has been sounding the alarm of when you pump your atmosphere full of greenhouse gases, the heat rises on the planet. We just didn't, I think the average citizen didn't realize that the results were going to be happening this quickly and this fast and this severely. Uh, I think we all had 2100 as sort of our time when things would start getting bad, and, and it's not. It's right now. And so, Teddy, you have a medical background. Um, besides making us uncomfortable, we know that extreme heat is dangerous. Um, what it, Describe what happens to our bodies when we are, are too hot for too long. That's a great question. Our bodies are exquisitely designed. They're just beautifully designed to adjust and rebalance and recalibrate as necessary. So when we're hot, the uh, our blood vessels dilate or get enlarged so that they can um, bring blood to the surface, and then we uh, lose heat um, via our skin. If that um, happens for a long period of time, the heart has to work harder to keep blood pressure up, and so it's stress on the heart. And then you couple that with humidity, where uh, the heat's being escaping through the skin, but it has nowhere to go. You're sweating, 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 and the humidity just keeps that sweat in place and doesn't evaporate, which is the cooling mechanism. So it is a very, very dangerous situation. And then... Um there is heat exhaustion. What do what do we mean when we use that term? Right. There's two sort of different stages of heat exposure. One is heat. One is well, three. One is just being darn uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, one is uh, heat exha exhaustion, and that's where your body's starting to really show signs that it's having a, a stress coping with this. So heavy sweating, cold, pale, clammy skin, uh, fast, weak, thready pulse, nausea, vomiting, muscle cramps, dizziness, headache, and fainting. But if we go past that point, we're in real trouble because we're heading into a heat stroke, and that can be life-threatening. And the signs of a heat stroke? Yes. A heat stroke is much more severe. People can actually faint. They can have um, very profound confusion, uh, dizziness. The skin is cool to touch. That mechanism, that rebound mechanism mm -hmm. of cooling us down is no longer working. Um, or excuse me, the skin is hot to touch in a heat stroke. And people can actually become uh, nauseated. 
And you and I were talking about just the emotional, the mental health impact of this when you are exposed to too much heat for too long for whatever reason, right? Because you work outside, because you don't have air conditioning. Um, and and that it, that takes a toll as well. Absolutely. So in addition to eco-anxiety, which experiencing these events is causing for people, um, there's higher rates of depression. And we're even seeing data indicating higher rates of suicide in profound uh, heat experiences, impaired thinking, um, and decrease in um, serotonin um, leads to frustration and actual increase in aggression. Mm. And and Jeff, I know you, you your a lot of your research focuses on um, the the earth and the climate. But have you seen sort of the the mental health, the emotional impact of of people enduring heat waves and extreme heat? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, during my reporting, I traveled around the world and you know went to places like um, Pakistan and India, and you know, you see the kind of fatigue and, you know, confusion and, um, you know, the, the difficulty in just sort of the simplest daily tasks in places like that. And, and here in, in Texas, I mean, you don't have to go to India or Pakistan, you can see it here, you know, and, and we all know that um, heat has psychological impacts. We feel it ourselves, we get cranky, um, mm-hmm. you know, we get irritable, the research on the psychological aspects of it is sort of the, the new frontier of, of heat exposure research. And there's a lot going on about its relation to violence and, and as Teddy said, suicide and other psychological, like psychological impacts. You know, I've been uh, listening to it and with, and having a great interest in what's happening in Europe, uh, reading about in the past week that uh, the extreme heat that they've experienced in Italy and Spain and Greece, that tourists have not been able to get out and explore and, and many of the ways that they'd hope for because of the threat of heat exhaustion, heat stroke. Um, and so what do you what do you make about of, of, of that, that that people are having this new understanding of that the heat is inescapable? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, that it's becoming very obvious to people who are exposed to this at, you know, for any amount of time. But I think that one of the things it really shows is the potential, well, not potential real time and increasing economic impacts of these extreme heat events. I mean, you know, I was talking to some city officials in Houston here the other day who were talking about having to shift all construction in the city to nighttime. Um, because of the risk to outdoor workers is so high. You know, in my book, I wrote about a um, agricultural worker, a farm worker in Oregon during the extreme heat there in 2021, that heat wave that uh, ultimately resulted in at least a thousand deaths um, who, who collapsed in the field because he was working so hard during this heat wave and there was no worker protections or laws for shade and water breaks. And he was afraid if he took a break, he was going to be fired. So instead of that, taking that risk, he took the risk of, of heat and ended up dead. And so, you know, when we think about the consequences of this, you know, there's the human, you know, health risk, but there's also these sort of broader economic risks of how do we keep our, um, you know, our, our economy, our world going, you know, the world that we know going during these extreme heat waves. I mean, it's not hard to imagine a place like Texas essentially sort of shutting down um, during the summertime uh, because of this kind of extreme heat. And Teddy, is that something that you are are learning more or seeing more of too, that, that people are having a broader understanding um, that uh, the consequences of extreme heat and heat waves? 
Absolutely. Um, some of the people that we, we have showing up in the emergency departments are people that are working outside, so your mm-hmm. construction workers, um, as was mentioned, but also roofers or people who are involved in landscape or managing um, uh, our, our properties, um, farmers who do not have access to air-conditioned equipment but actually harvest the fields in their uh, appropriate, um, in traditional ways, such as our Hmong farmers, are at added risk of heat. As uh, we talk about uh, the extreme heat and heat waves, uh, I want to hear from our listeners, too. I want you to think back to some of the hottest days that you have lived through. How did the extreme heat disrupt your plans? And and how are you thinking about uh, a warmer climate and what it will mean for you? What questions do you have for our guests about extreme heat and the effect on our bodies and on our planet? You can call us at 651-227-6000 or call 800-242-2828. And uh, Jeff and Teddy, before I continue with my questions for you, I want to take some phone calls from some listeners. Uh, In St. Cloud, we have Brad on the phone. Good morning, Brad. And what do you want to ask or share with us about the heat? Well, first, Angela, thank you for everything you do. I've been listening to you for about a year and a half. Love everything that you guys do there at NPR. Thank you. Um, Your last thing that your last person said was about managing your uh, household yards. Starting there, everybody should have a rain garden. Everybody shouldn't have the little amount of rain that we do get or lots of rain that we get just run off your yard. Have an area where it can run into a rain garden. That's a 20-foot hole that is a flower garden. You fill it in with rock. You put in deep base root plants. That will retain water then so your groundwater doesn't, you know, your water table doesn't go low. That will help your yard stay green on its own. Also, black, anything black, the roofs, the tar roads, start minimizing the amount of tar we use and black roofs we got to start using some lighter-colored roofing materials. If it gets too extreme, um, you know, there's something that I want to talk about also is a green roof, an actual grass roof that will not reflect the heat. Um, there's ways that that can be done. Um, and so, so the Brad, green I'm, heat I'm, is becoming – go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, do you work in construction? Or you seem to have a lot of knowledge on, on materials and building. I do. I have been building insulated concrete homes and stick frame homes for well over 35 years, 40 years. And I implemented rain gardens in my um, property and all the properties that I work with. I try to talk people into doing that. And, and, and Brett, this weighs on your mind because you want people to know that there are some solutions, that there are things that we can do individually that would be helpful. There are, mm-hmm. yes. In insulated concrete home, an ICF home, can eliminate the use of cutting down trees, um, you know, and it, it also eliminates the disasters that we're having with hurricanes, tornadoes, you name it, even fire, um, because that home is so strong, it's not succumbing to these disasters. And then we're not having to cut down more trees to rebuild what was built before with, I'm sorry to say it, an inferior product. Europe has been using concrete homes for many, many years and aren't cutting the trees the way we are here. Um, so an ICF home can eliminate that. Now you'll have strong enough walls, you could put a grass roof up on your house that will not reflect heat. 
All right, Brett. Well, I want to give our guests an, an opportunity to, to um, you know, share what they think about what you have shared. And Jeff, in your research, uh, what role does architecture and planning and construction uh, play in how we respond to a, a warming planet? Well, I think that the, all the points that um, your caller is making are really excellent. Um, and it's a really important idea that, you know, we can build in a better and different way to deal with these kinds of extreme heat. And, you know, the um, black roofs that he mentioned are, are, are an example that is sort of um, uh, a, 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 a lighter a, a programs for lighter roofs that are happening all around the world. That's a very important part of how cities are trying to adapt to heat is to um put up lighter colored roofs that reflect away the heat rather than absorbing it like black, like black roofs do. Um, there's experiments in, um, you know, uh, whitening streets so that the, you know, instead of having black asphalt that just sucks up and absorbs the heat and radiates it back, um, reflects it back into, into the um, atmosphere, you know, you have this problem of what's called the urban heat island effect, which is, you know, that cities are, 15 to 20 degrees hotter than the surrounding countryside around them. And yes. it's because of the way the cities are built. And so mm-hmm. these kinds of things that your caller is talking about are really important in, in cooling off cities and reducing the risk of heat exposure. Yeah. Teddy, I want to talk about uh, heat islands um, and, and, and tree coverage and, and what we know about, particularly here in Minnesota, uh, where the heat is even more problematic, where the consequences are even more dire. Where do we see these heat islands? And what does that even mean when we say that? Right. Well, we're talking about concentrated heat. Um, So when you're in an area where there's uh, no grass or no tree canopy, and it's all asphalt or all cement, it actually does become just this like sponge for heat. Mm -hmm. And um, we do see it in particular areas, um, neighborhoods that were traditionally or historically redlined, and they didn't have planting of trees as a focus do not have adequate tree canopy coverage. Now, we can certainly plant trees now, and a lot of our cities are looking at those maps and saying, where do we need to target our plantings? But that's maybe 20 years out before the tree's large enough to provide comfort. And who lives in these areas? Generally, um, uh, black and and brown communities. Mm -hmm. And often those are people who have maybe the least access to adequate health care. Absolutely. Or um, uh, cannot afford high air conditioning bills. Right. And air conditioning. Uh, In Minnesota, a lot of homes don't have air conditioning. That's right. right. Uh, We have a a comfortable period right now with the weather. It'll be hot again. Mm -hmm. Um, But how do you think about that when you think about, um, you know, advice for people here in Minnesota about when we do have extreme heat, how they should handle it? Well, um, the first thing is, you know, ideally you would have uh, some sort of circulation in your your home if it's cool enough that you can have a window open and a fan creating some breeze so that when you do sweat, you're the, that sweat evaporates and is a natural source of cooling. But you get to a certain point where the heat is hot, it's hot enough in your house that that's mm-hmm. not adequate. If people can't afford a room air conditioner um, uh, um, in their window, then we need to be looking at cooling centers. And that's starting to be planned now. How mm-hmm. do we set up resilience? resiliency hubs and cooling centers so people who do not have access to um, that those cooler temperatures can go at night to get respite. As our um, uh, guest mentioned, it's when your body doesn't get the respite, that's the big issue. That break from it. Mm-hmm. And what are your thoughts about uh, the caller who talked about um, the role that construction and, and planning and architect- architecture plays in this? I think every field is necessary to rethink how we do things. We need to 
be thinking about the products we use, the designs of what we do. We need to be thinking about future generations in mind. But the caller's um, question prompted me to talk about animals briefly in that asphalt mm. can be very, very dangerous for dogs. So be sure that you're, if, if, it's, if the asphalt's hot enough to fry an egg, it's hot enough to um, burn the, the dog's pads. And that's one mm. of the ways the dogs um, cool down is through their pads and through panting. We're talking about extreme heat, the heat waves we're seeing across the U.S., across the world. And I want to know your thoughts about this. What questions do you have about the heat and heat waves, its effect on our body, on our planet? As I talk with our guests, uh, we're talking with Jeff Goodell, who is a writer and the author of the book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. I'm going to talk to Jeff more about what's in that book, as well as Teddy Potter, who is a clinical professor and director of planetary health at the University of Minnesota School of Nursing. Call us at 651-227-6000 with your questions or comments, or you can call 800-242-2828. Let's talk with a listener in St. Paul. It's David. Hi, David. Thank you for waiting. And what do you want to share? What did you want to ask about the heat? Yeah, hi. I was just wondering, um, you know, even if we're not affected by the heat directly, we are affected by the heat through, you know, the air quality and whether or not we are able to grow enough food or how food is grown and things like that. And I just look at um, part of my concern or anxiety, what raises my anxiety levels is the fact that, mm-hmm. maybe not a fact, but, uh, you know, the apathy of the general population in addressing this concern. I'm walking around my neighborhood and there's people cutting their lawns down to, you know, they look like golf golf course tea, you know, green, and then they're still watering their grass, even though we're in a drought. And um, yeah, so I was just wondering if you're, even if we're not directly implicated, how can people deal with the anxiety of what they see going on around us? And also, mm-hmm. like, how do you deal with the apathy, not just of the general population, but of corporations or other people or other entities, um, cities and things that aren't taking the proper actions to address this issue. Thank you. Climate anxiety. It is is real. You know, Jeff, uh, as a journalist and a book author, I am curious, uh, you know, why did you specifically decide to focus your time and energy on on research and looking at at, at climate and heat and water issues as well? What what was happening with you um, to you know, devote your uh, abilities to helping people understand uh, climate change better? Well, it's interesting. I I grew up in California uh, and I grew up in a very kind of conservative family. We did a lot of hunting and fishing. Um, I raced motorcycles when I was younger. I I was not a come into this, into journalism or or into um, thinking about this from a sort of environmental point of view. I worked at Apple Computer in the early days. Um, but then um, about 20 years ago, the New York Times asked me to go um, write about uh, the comeback of the coal industry in West Virginia. And I went down there and I really saw the consequences of this you know, amount, enormous mountaintop removal, coal mining. And I started thinking about the consequences of burning that coal. And I, and it, and I realized that you know, climate change and how we generate energy and the consequences of that is sort of the great story of our time and this transformation that we're going through uh, on how we rethink about our world, how we rethink about how we build buildings, build houses, grow food, uh, create energy is just as a journalist, a, um, you know, a, a great story. And I've been writing about it for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And just to add one other thing, which is that, you know, people 
always asked me, why are you not like an alcoholic living in your basement, you know, worried about the fate of civilization, given what's going on? And I find it, in fact, you know, incredibly inspiring because I find people all the time, uh, every day when I'm out reporting, people who are doing amazing things, thinking differently about how to build houses like your earlier caller mm -hmm. talked about or how to generate entrepreneurs in the energy field who are thinking differently about our about what we can do. And I think we're at this moment of sort of great opportunity and transformation that is um, really important to seize and to be involved with. It's a call to action. I like how you think, exactly. Jeff. Uh, I do have to ask you this, though. <laughs> the title of your book, your latest book, is rather startling. It's called The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death of a Scorched Planet. How did you arrive at that title? Well, you know, I, I, as I just mentioned, I am very optimistic. But I also think that before we talk about solutions or think deeply about solutions and what we can do, we need to really grasp the scale and scope and urgency of the problem that we're facing here. And the title is provocative. Uh, and I know that and it was controversial even among the my, at my publisher and everything. But I really wanted to for this book to break out of the sort of general climate change, global warming conversation that makes it seem like some distant event that's going to happen to other people somewhere in the future, and really underscore that this is happening now, and that you know, your life is at risk, um, whether you are conscious of that or not. You know, I, I, you know, didn't understand the full implications of um, extreme heat until I went through, a, you know, came, went through heat exhaustion and things. And I realized that most people are very, very ignorant about the risks that are, that heat uh, poses to their own lives. And so I, I wanted it to be provocative because I wanted people to, to think differently about, about the world they live in. And I've I've heard you say that you 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 don't even like the term global warming and climate change. What's what's your issue with those words to describe uh, heat of this magnitude? Well, because they're they're very you know gentle words. They're very like they make it sound like you know better better uh, beach weather or you know nicer weekends to go to the lake. You know they don't capture the urgency and they're scope and scale of of what we're really facing I, um you know climate crisis i think comes a little bit closer but even that is sort of um not adequate and so you know uh i i don't know what a better term is but i but i do think that you know we need to really understand what we're dealing with here and we need to understand that it's happening now it's changing everything about our lives and um you know Heat is just one example of that, but it's the one that is the most urgent when you think about, you know, what the consequences for you immediately will be. You know, it might be a cool day in the Twin Cities or a relatively nice day in the Twin Cities today, but, you know, Around there were a the lot corner. of nice days mm -hmm. in Seattle in 2021, and all of a sudden it was 121 degrees in British Columbia, and, you know, nobody was prepared, nobody had air conditioning, nobody knew what to do, and, you know, more than a thousand people died. And that, that health impact, Teddy, I, I want to talk about uh, what do warmer temperatures uh, do when people are on medication or have certain, uh, you know, requirements for taking medications, uh, and particularly people who are taking medications to maintain their mental wellness? 
Right. So um, I have a word for Jeff, and that's emergency. Um, We call this a public health emergency, and the World Health Organization acknowledges that climate change is a public health emergency. We have to respond now and respond fast because this is impacting the health of our people. And before I get to your question about medications, I just want to acknowledge the beauty of our of your caller, who really is um, thinking in terms of systems, or everything's Mm -hmm. um, connected. And that even though we might not be seeing particular events happen in here, we're part of a global system. So we're part of a global food system. We're and connected. We certainly saw with the pandemic that um, something around the, the world can happen that impacts our population's health very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to salute that and acknowledge that we do have to move people beyond apathy and denial. But that's happening. If you look at research done by um, Yale's Six Americans study, Americans are starting to wake up and more and more are becoming alarmed and concerned. And that's a very positive sign that this is happening. People are beginning to become aware. So to the medication issue, yes, there are certain medications that um, this people who are on these medications have even worse trouble with, um, with heat. And those are beta blockers, diuretics, antihistamines, tranquilizers, antipsychotics, and other medications. So um, we need to have our pharmacists informed. Anytime a prescription is filled, they need to be talking to people about the risks of heat and how are you going to store medications that require um, adequate storage. A lot of our medications, it says store at room temperature, but that's not Mm -hmm. 110 degrees. Mm -hmm. So we need to be thinking about this. How are we we going to be keeping our people safe? And then also uh, your exposure to the heat, if you can control it, right? Just be aware. Like I'm someone who really just can't be super hot for a long time. That's right. Every Mm -hmm. individual is different. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's take a phone call from a listener in Annandale. Patty's on the phone. Good morning, Patty. What do you want to tell us about uh, dealing with the heat? Well, I'm uh, dealing with the heat in a nutritional level, which we really haven't talked about too much. Um, when I was young, I'm a very old person. Um, whenever it got hot, we were given salt tablets to reduce the level of dehydration. Um, I use have used salt pills during my entire life when I know I'm going to be standing out at the rodeo and, you know, it's going to be hot or whatever. And we were prescribed regularly during um, my younger years and reminded on radio shows and advertisements and things about taking salt when you get too hot. So that led me to the um, setting of certain foods that are called diaphoretics that um, make you actually sweat. And those are foods that you don't want to eat. So between this idea of the fact that you need the salt when you're sweating to keep your body from eliminating any of the moisture, um, and then adding that to a diet of anti-diaphoretic foods um, was something that us older people were raised with. Wow. This is uh, Patty and Annandale. Have you heard of this, Teddy? What do you think about that, adding more salt to the diet? Um, we, <laughs> salt, um, has some downsides that yes. we want to be aware of. Um, and so I, I want to be, um, 
help people understand that this natural body of, way of cooling down is for us to sweat. So we want to um, sweat to to get rid of the ex- excess heat that we have. Um, in warmer climates, um, warmer cultures, they will eat hot foods, spicy foods on purpose to sweat because it's part of the cooling process. Hmm. So I'm I'm not too sure about not wanting to sweat. I'm um, I think that might be something that we need to look at. Um, uh, Also, we want to make sure that people are drinking adequate fluids, but they're not fluids that cause people to lose fluids. So for example, we don't want to drink a lot of caffeinated fluids or alcohol. Um, We want to be replenishing our fluids with water or um, a juice, but certainly not um, caffeine. And advice for people who uh, have to work outside, uh, have to be outside for many hours during the heat. Earlier, you know, we you know, uh, we talked about the economic impact, and and Jeff was telling us in Texas that that you know some companies are looking to shifting some of the construction work at nighttime. Um, what would you say to to people who have to work outside, Teddy, or to companies or employers who have to address the health concerns of these workers? I think we these are days that call for us to be um, really strongly watching out for one another. This is not a sign of weakness to say I need to sit in the shade for a while or I need to get some added water. Sometimes people think they can power through or I'm strong or I'm athletic or or, uh, muscular from working outside. I don't have to worry about this and nothing could be further from the case. We're talking about the stress on the heart when the heart has to overwork. And everybody's hearts have to work over time to get rid of and dissipate the heat. So as an employer, if you want to have healthy employees, we need to have um, adequate shade uh, available as well as uh, plenty of fluids throughout the day and not be um, shame-basing our decisions or um, uh, limiting people from uh, caring for themselves if they're really in distress. And one of the points I wanted to make is that you oftentimes, when you're in heat exhaustion, you don't know that you're in heat exhaustion. Your your thinking starts to get fuzzy. You, your actions might not be as, as um, uh, predictable. You might not be as steady on your feet, and you do not know it. So we have to be watching after each other. You may not be making good decisions. Absolutely. Oh. All right. Uh, I want to get back to you, Jeff, to, to learn more about what's in your book. Uh, you've been looking at what's been happening with the extreme heat and, and other weather conditions all over the world for years. Uh, you've traveled a lot. Uh, describe a little bit about what you share in your book. Well, one of the things that I really wanted to try to communicate in the book was not just the impact of heat on our bodies and you know what it means for you know life and death for us and, and how to cope with heat, as we've been talking about on the show. But also, you know, heat is the sort of primary driver of all of the climate impacts that, that we think about, um, from sea level rise to drought to wildfires and everything. And so I wanted to really capture that also. And um, so in my book, I, for example, I, I went on a scientific research cruise to Antarctica, um, it would seem like an unlikely place to talk about heat. But what I really wanted to capture there was that just small changes in the ocean temperature, just literally one degree Fahrenheit changes is beginning to, uh, is warming the water enough to allow this ocean water to get underneath the big glaciers in West Antarctica, destabilizing them and radically increasing the risk of sea level rise. So I, I, and you know, I went to Houston and trapped mosquitoes um, with public health officials to talk about how um, just small changes in heat changes, you know, 
where different animals go and how they move to keep in their kind of comfort zone. And mosquitoes are a great example that they're moving to new places as these as our climate warms. And they carry things like Zika um, and dengue fever and malaria. You know, we have a resurgence in malaria in the first time in the United States in decades here in the in the southern states. And, you know, so I really wanted to capture that heat, you know, is a is a subtle driver of a lot of forces and a lot of changes in our world beyond the immediate impact uh, on our bodies that we've been discussing today. And you also talk about the Pacific Northwest and, and um, the heat wave that they experienced, uh, I think, a couple of years ago. Right. In, 2020, in 2021, yeah, more than a thousand people died. And, you know, and the reason that that's important and particularly relevant to, you know, you in in Minneapolis and people in the in the north who think that, you know, they're living in a cool climate and heat waves are not really um, so relevant. You know, no one expected those kinds of temperatures in 2021 in in uh, 121 degrees in British Columbia, these kinds of extreme heat waves hitting. And one of the things um, that's, I think, most important to grasp when we think about what's happening with our climate and the changes that are coming is that, um, you know, we're moving into a new climate era. We are the, the, the climate that we grew up with, all of us, is is gone. And we are moving into a new climate era that's not only warmer, but has these more extreme events that are happening in ways and at times and at an accelerated pace that are very difficult to predict. And so a place like the Pacific Northwest was completely unprepared for a heat wave. Nobody, very few people had air conditioning. Very few people knew what to do. It was just like this lightning bolt of heat. And so in, in certain ways, places like the Twin Cities and places like where my mom lives in Montana are more vulnerable to, to these extreme heat events because people are just completely not prepared. And also scientists right now really don't know how hot we can get or, or what we could be looking at as far as like the maximum. Right. I mean, the climate models have been very good at tracking long-term temperature projections and the model, even ExxonMobil knew in the 1970s, uh, the models that they used um, that tracked the relationship between CO2 in the atmosphere and temperature changes have turned out to be really accurate. So the long-term projections are, are models and stuff are really good. What's not good is the short term, um, the, the looking at the what's called the climate sensitivity and how fast and how extreme these events um, can happen. And that is what's surprising a lot of scientists right now with what's happening right now around the world is, you know, how how much of the world is suffering from extreme heat right now. And in my book, I, I, I asked the best scientists in the world, like, you know, I live in Texas. It's a hot place. How hot can it get here right now? What are is there a, is there a, a, a limit to how hot these heat waves can get? You know, there was a heat wave in Antarctica last year that was seventy degrees above normal. You know, could we get a, a heat wave in in Texas or in Phoenix that's seventy degrees above normal? And the scientists that I talked to said, no, we're not going to get a you know seventy degrees, but we can't rule out one hundred and thirty degrees. We can't. We don't know what the upper limit are is for even right now for these extreme heat events. And 
a, a, a heat wave of 130 degrees in any populated city in the U.S. would be just catastrophic for all kinds of reasons. So in your book, do you also write about um, the conversations that scientists are having about uh, continuing to burn fossil fuels and, and therefore adding more you know, um, CO2 to the atmosphere? Yeah, I mean, you know, that is a very important point that we need to underscore here that the reason that our climate is getting hotter is because we are continuing to burn fossil fuels, which produce CO2, which traps heat in our atmosphere. The science around this is as solid and as real and as straightforward as, you know, the science of gravity. And it, and it's really important to, to, to understand that, you know, this this carbon pollution we're putting in the atmosphere is different than the kind of air pollution that we're used to thinking about, you know, that creates smog and dirty air and particulate matter and things like that. The CO2 we're putting in the atmosphere is more or less permanent. So our um, climate is going to continue warming until we stop putting CO2 in the atmosphere, until we stop burning fossil fuels. And then when that happens, it's not going to go back to what it used to be. It is going to stay the, at the temperature limit that we have set, whatever that is, by continuing to burn fossil fuels, which is why it's really important to, to reduce fossil fuel consumption fast because every molecule adds to the heat. And uh, Teddy, how does that sit with you, the, the thought that we're not going back to the way it used to be? That's exactly right. And But we do want it to be as good as possible. We know there's about a 30-year lag time. So what we're experiencing today is related to the amount of greenhouse gases that were in the atmosphere about 30 years ago. I did not know so that. So there is a slow lag time. For those of us in Minnesota, we know if you pull a, a, bl a blanket up in the winter, you don't get warm right away. It takes a little time. And then once you warm up, that heat is trapped in, under our blanket. We're doing the same thing with the Earth. And we keep adding blankets and we keep adding blankets and it is going the heat is going to continue to rise. And as Jeff said, every fraction of a degree that we add, we're committing the future to a worse scenario. So we say if you emit, you commit. We want to stop this burning of fossil fuels right now. A week ago, uh, Teddy, we talked about poor air quality on this show. So I, I want to ask you about that as well. Uh, and the harm that comes from, you know, the smoke from the Canadian wildfires. And, and what do you want people to know about air quality as well and why that's important? Absolutely. And I think to echo Jeff's point, um, when people are not prepared, that's when the, the worst events can, can occur. So we're used to being the people um, from the land of sky blue waters. That's what Minnesota means. It's a Dakota word um, that means the land that, um, where the waters reflect the sky. And so we're not used to skies that are orange. I went out with my grandson and took a picture. The sun was red. It wasn't a red sunset. It was a red mm -hmm. sun. And people with um, underlying respiratory conditions, this is very, very hazardous with people with asthma, asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. But it's dangerous for everyone when it gets into the red or purple zone. So we are um, all at risk of these events that are starting to occur. And Jeff, anything you would add about the, the air quality index and the uh, alerts that we've seen uh, across the U.S. as those wildfires in Canada uh, blew smoke into our, our communities? Well, I, you know, I echo what, what Teddy said, and I think it's a great example of the sort of cascading impacts of this kind of rising heat that we're talking about, you know, and everywhere I go and I give talks about my book and stuff, people always say, where do I move that's safe? Where is a place that I can go that, you know, I can kind of escape these changes that are happening? And, and 
the impacts there in Minnesota of the wildfires in Alberta are a perfect example of there is no safe refuge in, in that sense. We are all connected. This is impacting us everywhere um, simultaneously. You know, the heat dries out the forest, which causes the forest fires when they ignite to burn bigger and hotter. The smoke drifts down to Minnesota, it turns the skies, Blade Runner orange in New York. You know, this, there's, there is, this is a, um, what scientists call a kind of cascading events. And I think that that's a really powerful idea to understand about these planetary changes that we're talking about here is that, you know, it impacts all of us everywhere. And even if you're sitting in your office in, on a hot day in Texas, like I am right now, and I have air conditioning on, I am not, I am in a bubble and I am not protected. I am still as vulnerable as, as anyone to these changes that are happening. And that is a really important point to underscore. So Jeff, in your research, um, what are you finding that uh, makes people feel hopeful? Uh, or what are the solutions that are taking place now that you want to see more of that you think could have an impact? Jeff, did you hear me? Sorry. I said, it, what, um, what are you seeing that, uh, that you find hopeful? Yeah. You know, what is hopeful is people getting engaged. What is hopeful is people is people who are, um, you know, getting politically engaged, who are talking about this, who are fighting for this. You know, we're seeing um, building awareness like Teddy um, talked about. I think that people are beginning to get the message and beginning to understand that, you know, we can adapt to a lot of this stuff. We can make changes. We can save lives. We can use this as an inflection moment to kind of create a better world. But we need to move fast because this is happening very fast. And Teddy, what would you say makes you hopeful? Well, I'm an old community health nurse and have been uh, visiting patients on farms and in apartment buildings and in shelters and schools and businesses across the state. And I believe in Minnesotans. I believe in our um, innate ability to care for one another and really um, come together when times are rough. I believe in our innovation and our spirit and belief that we can work through things together and come up with new solutions. And I'm seeing that happen. The students that are coming to the University of Minnesota, they have a dream mm -hmm. for what the world can be when they work together to innovate change. Mm. And it's happening across sectors, and we need everyone to get involved. Involved. No matter what age people are, no matter what demographic they're from, we need everyone right now. It's an all-hands-on-deck moment, so we hope people join. All right. Well, you, you classify, you called yourself an old uh, an old community health nurse, you said. I'm an old journalist, and I'm, I'm hopeful as well. Thank you. And I, I love that we're having the conversation and learning more about the, the, the source of the problem and the impact. I think that does make a difference when we can talk about things. Uh, I want to thank our guests. We're out of time for the hour and, and thank our listeners as well who called in with their, with their stories. We've been talking with Jeff Goodell, a climate journalist. Thank you for your work, Jeff. The name of the new book is The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Joining us from Texas this morning and Teddy Potter here in the studio with me, a clinical professor and director of planetary health at the University of Minnesota School of Nursing, as well as a leader in the climate change and health curriculum. Thank you, Teddy. This conversation today was produced by Matthew Alvarez. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.